0: If you have your Bibles, please turn to, flip to, scroll to, press 1 Samuel chapter 17. If you're wondering where 1 Samuel is, it's in the first half of your Bible, Old Testament, 1 Samuel chapter 17. Hey, by the way, if you are not just new to Thrive Church, but this is your first time ever in a church, maybe you don't consider yourself a Christian, you're just kind of exploring, you're kind of curious, maybe coming from a different religious background or no background at all, we're just so thrilled to have you here. And we hope that you find that Thrive is a safe place for you, where you can be yourself, where you can ask the questions that are on your mind, where you can find some community, where you can find hope to help you as we start this week together. And if there's any way that we can serve you, you can always email us at info at thrivechurch.ca. We would absolutely love to hear from you. Would you turn to name and say, I'm glad to be sitting next to you. I'm glad to be sitting next to you. Our theme for this new year here at Thrive Church is all for one name. And it's because whether you consider yourself a follower of Jesus or not, whether you've been to church before or not, I'm here to tell you that the reason why you are here, the reason why you're on this planet, the reason God put breath in your lungs is for one purpose. It's that you would live all for one name. His name is Jesus. And why is that? It's because Jesus has done something that no one else in history has done. A lot of people have shared their philosophies. A lot of people have started religious movements. A lot of people have rounded up people for a big cause. But the fact is, Jesus and only Jesus is the one who died on the cross for our sins to bring us back to God. And because Jesus gave us all for us, the Bible says that our proper, appropriate response is to give all for his name, the name of Jesus. Now, I'll be the first to admit that I often and forget that it's not about me. It's about Jesus. And so how do fallible, imperfect people like us crawl and stumble and fumble our way to living all for one name? That's what we're talking about in this series and in this theme called All for One Name. And to help us unpack what that all means, we're going through a very powerful book in the Old Testament called 1 Samuel. And we're not just doing this on Sundays. We're doing this every day. And if you want to get in on that, it's really easy. You go to mythrive.info and subscribe for Pastor JB's Game Time Sharing. What we'll do is in the morning, we'll send you a passage from the book of 1 Samuel that you can read, a short passage, and you can look at that, and if you're not really sure what to gain from that, I'll share with you in that same email some thoughts that you can think about and a prayer that you can pray, and so doing, we're walking through the Bible together. Turn to your neighbor and say, let's do this together. Let's do this together. Are you guys ready for the message today? Yeah. Let's get into it right here, right now. The message I'm here to share with you is called, The Type of Courage You Need. The type of courage you need. See, today we are looking at one of the most famous stories ever told. And it's the story of David and Goliath. You will find the story of David and Goliath right in the middle of 1 Samuel. It's in 1 Samuel 17. And see, because David and Goliath is such a famous story, many people assume that they already know all there is to know about David and Goliath. There's nothing new under the sun that you can tell me about David and Goliath. Well, my hope is that today this message is going to encourage you to see the story with fresh eyes. And in addition to that, that you're going to learn some powerful lessons for your own, your own life as well. And see, with that in mind, I want to invite you all to take a look with me at 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 4. And as I walk off this stage, I want to ask you to keep your ears and your eyes open for what's happening next. Here we go. A champion named Goliath from Gath came out of the Philistine camp. nine feet tall. Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he's able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subject and serve us! <laughs> this day I defy the rags of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other! <laughs> David, with his sling in his hand, approached the Philistine. Goliath looked David over and saw that he was only a boy, ruddy and handsome, and despised him. Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, and I'll give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. David said to the Philistine, You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied this day. The Lord will hand you over to me, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. Today I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth, and the whole world will know there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know it's not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you all into our hands. As the Philistine moved closer to attack, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. Ah! The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell face down on the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and killed him. David ran and stood over him. He took hold of the Philistine's sword, and he drew it from the scabbard. He cut off his head with a sword. When the Philistine saw that their hero was dead, they turned and ran. Could we give a gigantic hand to our David and our Goliath right now? That was fantastic. And man, that David is good looking for some reason. I don't know why. I'm running the family or something like that. I'm not sure. That was fantastic. Well, you know, the story of David and Goliath is one of the best known stories in history. And it's a wonderful lesson on courage. It shows that with God, all things are possible. But in case you're wondering, how can a person actually be nine feet tall? Keep in mind that according to the records that we have in human history, that the tallest people that have ever lived have been around eight and a half to nine feet tall. So it's not out of the question that Goliath could have been that tall as well. But see, this story is more than a piece of Israel's history. And this story is more than just a tale about a courageous young man. Because when you understand the New Testament, you're going to find that this story about David and Goliath, is actually a powerful picture that points us to Jesus Christ, that it points us to who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for us. That's why the message today is called The Type of Courage You Need. See, what is a type? Let me tell you what a type is. A type is something, whether it's a person, a place, an object, an event— That you find in the Old Testament that points us to the person and work of Jesus Christ in the New Testament. See, a type is a person, a place, an event, a thing in in the Old Testament that without necessarily even trying to, in an imperfect way, it points to who Jesus is and what Jesus Christ has done. David is a type of Jesus Christ. And he's an imperfect picture pointing us to Jesus and who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. Now, anyone can spot basic similarities when you put two things together. It's true. But I think you're going to see that as we look piece by piece at the story of David Goliath and how specific those parallels can be, I think you're going to find that it's no coincidence and that David truly is a picture pointing us to Jesus. With that in mind, I hope to take some good notes today as we look at seven ways that David anticipates the person and work of Jesus Christ. Seven ways that David is a type of Jesus. Number one, David was the most anointed king of the Old Testament. Jesus, in a similar way, is the most anointed king of the New Testament. So you got to understand this. By the time the story of David and Goliath happens, David has already been anointed the next king of Israel. We looked at this last week in 1 Samuel 16, where the prophet whose name is Samuel, he takes a horn of oil and then glug, 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 he pours that oil all over David's head to anoint him as the next king. And see, that's not the only time that David has been anointed with oil. Do you know that? If you keep on reading, if you go to 2 Samuel chapter 2, David is with his tribe of Judah. It's the men of Judah, the tribe that that David comes from. And these men of Judah come to David and they anoint him with oil and basically say, you are the king of the house of Judah. And then a few chapters later, in 2 Samuel chapter 5, you see that the elders of Israel, they surround David, they anoint him with oil once again, and this time as the king of the entire nation of Israel. And so in other words, David is not anointed just once. He's anointed three times. And if you just count the number of times oil is placed on David's head, David is by far the most anointed king of the Old Testament. Now, what does it mean to be anointed? To be anointed means more than just having a very oily head. It means more than that. See, to be anointed means to be appointed. Appointed to what? To be anointed means to be appointed to a life of serving God, where you carry the presence and the power of God with you. And see, just as David was the most anointed king of the Old Testament, I'm here to tell you, Jesus is the most anointed king of all time. Look at Luke chapter 4, 18 and 19 with me. This is Jesus who's in a synagogue, an assembly of people worshiping God. And then he grabs the scroll of Isaiah and he reads this from the scroll of Isaiah. It says, read it with me. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's Favor. And so he's reading this passage from the scroll of Isaiah. Jesus rolls it up. He says to everyone, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And if you understand the scripture, this scripture is a centuries old scripture that's pointing to the day that Israel would have a Messiah, a Savior King that would come to save them. And so when Jesus says, This scripture is fulfilled in your hearing, he's basically saying, Guess what? You've been waiting for the Messiah, and I'm that Messiah. I am that king. The spirit of the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor and to bring hope to a broken world. And that's why when you even take the name Jesus Christ, do you know that the word Christ actually means anointed? Jesus, he is the holy and anointed one. And because of that, he has been appointed to a life of serving God where he carries the presence and power of God with him. See, likewise, do you know this? is that when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, when you believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins and rose again from the grave, something happens to you. And do you know what it is? Is that you become anointed as well. Look at 2 Corinthians 1:21 with me. With me, loud voice it says, now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. See, in other words, when you receive Jesus Christ into your life, God anoints you with his Holy Spirit, such that now with the Holy Spirit living on the inside of you, you have been appointed to a life of serving God, where you carry the presence and the power of God on your life. Later on today, when you go home, you don't just go home, but an anointed person is going home. Later on this week when you go to work and you meet clients, you're just not someone who's there at work meeting clients. You're an anointed person carrying the presence and power of God on your life when you meet with clients. When you go to school, same kind of thing. When you go home, when you do anything, that's what's happening. Is that you are an anointed person who's bringing the presence and power of God wherever you go. Turn to your room and say, looks like someone's anointed. Looks like someone's anointed. And you see, don't take your anointing for granted. Never forget that you have been called not to a life of living for yourself, but a life of serving God, where you carry the presence and the power of God on your life. That's the first parallel, is that just as David was the most anointed king, Jesus is the most anointed king. Secondly, David was rejected by his brothers. Jesus was rejected by his brothers. You see, David wasn't just anointed. He was also humble. And what, like we saw last week, is that by being humble, it means that he has a disposition to serving others. He has a heart to serve. You put him in a room and his natural tendency, the way he leans toward is to say, how can I help? How can I serve others? And it's not because he feels insecure. It's not because he feels inferior to everybody else, but he does it because he is secure in who he is. He's secure in God's love for him. And so therefore he can serve other people. And see, that's why when his father, Jesse, needs a shepherd to take care of his sheep, David says, I'll be that shepherd. And then later on, when Jesse needs someone to go and deliver food to his eldest sons who are serving on the battlefield in Saul's army, David is that delivery boy. He's like, yeah, I'll take this like Uber Eats. I'll take the food to my brothers. And that's what he does. And when he gets to the battlefield, he hears Goliath trash talking the people of Israel saying, why do you line up for battle? You know, to hell with your God, to hell with the people of Israel. This day I defy the ranks of Israel. Give me a man, let us fight each other. You know, that's what he does. And see, when David hears this, his passion is stirred up. His passion for his people, his passion for his God. And see, he starts to look around and look at the, the Israelite soldiers. And he's like, you know, what's, who does Philistine think he is? How dare he insult our God and insult our people? But then in the middle of all that, David's older brother, his name is Eliab, comes up to David and scolds David in front of everybody. Look at 1 Samuel 17, 28. It says, read it with me. When Eliab, David's older brother, heard him speaking with the men, he burned with anger at him and asked, why have you come down here? And with whom did you leave those few sheep in the desert? I know how conceited you are, how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle. Now, what have I done? Said David. Can't I even speak? He then turned away to someone else and brought up the same matter. See what's going on is that based on this exchange between David and his brother, Eliab, it's pretty clear that this wasn't the first time that David's brothers ever picked on David. In fact, when you look at the previous chapter, 1 Samuel 16, David is the only one who's excluded, which suggests that there's been a history of him being left out, being rejected, being excluded, not really belonging. And see, just as David was rejected by his brothers, Jesus was rejected by his brothers. You see, for much of Jesus' life, Jesus had half-brothers. And these half-brothers did not believe in Jesus. These are the natural sons of Joseph and and Mary, who came after Jesus. And they didn't believe who Jesus claimed to be. He's like, yeah, I'm the son of God. They're like, no, no, you're not. You're my brother. That's all. And, and so he didn't believe him. In fact, John 7, 5 says, for even his own brothers did not believe in him. See, it wasn't until Jesus died on the cross and then he rose again from the grave that James, one of Jesus' half-brothers, finally believed that Jesus is who he claimed to be. And he's like, oh my goodness, I had no idea. And James would end up becoming one of the leaders of the church that Jesus started. James would even die for the belief that his brother is God. But see, it wasn't just Jesus' brothers that rejected Jesus. At first, it's the whole world that's rejected Jesus. Isaiah 53 verse three says it this way. It says, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar suffering, like one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. See, the Bible says that all of us have turned away from Jesus. We've all rejected Jesus in our own way. For example, in this world today, what name is more maligned, more abused, more misused, treated more as a curse word than any other name in this world, it's the name of Jesus. And it's interesting, it's even ironic that in today's culture, which is super sensitive to words, where there are so many words, which for good reason, we shouldn't say, no one bats an eye when someone uses Jesus' name as a curse word. No one goes, oh, that's insensitive to Jesus, or that's insensitive to Jews, or that's insensitive to Christians. No one says that. And maybe it's just because that's our prideful human spirit where we have this tendency to lift up people and reject Jesus or reject God. That's why John 1 11 says it this way. It says, he came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. And so if you've been rejected before by people in your family, by friends or in some other way, guess what? Jesus knows how you feel because Jesus experiences more rejection on a daily basis than any other person. Jesus understands your pain. Would you turn to and say, Jesus knows, Jesus, knows Jesus knows your pain. Jesus knows your pain. And see the third way. Well, that's the second way. Jesus, just like David was rejected by his brothers. Number three, David stood in the middle between the people he loves and the one who wanted to destroy them. In the same way, Jesus stood in the middle between the people he loves and the one who wanted to destroy them. I know that's kind of long. You can take a picture of it. We're going to get back to it in just a minute. But let's read 1 Samuel 17 verse 8. What does it say? It says, Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, choose a man and have him come down to me. I'm sorry. I I hope you'll forgive my Goliath voice. I just can't help but get it out today. All right. He says, choose a man and have him come down. Everyone say, come down. And see, when, De- when Goliath demands that someone come down as Israel's representative and fight Goliath, David, out of love for his people, out of love for God, he comes down into the valley of Elah, and he stands in the middle between the people he loves, the people of Israel, and the one who wants to destroy them. And see, David, he's effectively risking his life to save his people. And see, Ham-nyo, the Bible says that we also have an enemy. It's not one another. It's not flesh and blood, but our enemy is called Satan. And the Bible says that there's this ongoing war between God's kingdom of light and Satan's kingdom of darkness. And when each of us have turned away from God and rejected God in our own way, the Bible says that the penalty for our sin is death, separation from God. The Bible says one more thing about Satan is that Satan is an accuser. In fact, Satan's name means accuser. And so what that means is this, like a prosecutor in a court of law, Satan's agenda is to put you away and separate you from God forever. That's his goal. He wants to kill, steal, and destroy your life. It says, you've got us on one side and we've got Satan on another. And Satan, he's got the law of God in his hands. And he's pointing to all the ways that you have failed, all the ways that you have sinned, all the ways you've messed up. And he's pointing to you and saying, die. Die die, die. He's saying you deserve to die. You need to die. And see when the penalty that we rightfully, rightfully deserve for our sin was death, when there was nothing that you or I could do to get to God on our own, Jesus came down and he stood between us and Satan and said, I will die for them. And see, that's why Jesus went on a cross it's to pay the penalty for our sin and to save us. That's why John 15:13 says it this way. It says, "Read it with me: greater love has no one than this that he lay down his life." For his friends. Because just as David stood in the middle between the people that he loves and the one who wanted to destroy them, Jesus stood in the middle between us, the people he loves, and the one who wanted to destroy us. That's the third parallel. Fourth parallel today David confronted the enemy not in the clothes of a warrior, but in the clothes of a shepherd. In the same way, Jesus confronted our enemy not in the clothes of a warrior, but in the clothes of a shepherd. What do I mean by that? See, to defeat Goliath, David actually rejected the typical armor and the typical weapons that a soldier would use to fight in battle when he confronted Goliath. Instead, when he confronted Goliath, he came just as he was, as a shepherd. In look, look at Samuel, 1 Samuel 17, verse 38 with me. Read it with me today. It says, then Saul dressed David in his own tunic. He put a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head. David fastened on his sword over the tunic and tried walking around because he was not used to them. I cannot go in these," he said to Saul, "because I'm not used to them." He took them off. Then he took his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in the pouch of the shepherd's bag, and with his sling in his hand approached the Philistines. So what's going on? So King Saul, he's the king of Israel. He's an experienced warrior, and he's also the tallest man in the army. He's head and shoulders above everybody. And if there was anyone. That That would make sense to go and fight Goliath on behalf of the people, it's Saul. But see, Saul's afraid. Saul's insecure. And when David comes up to Saul and says, Let me fight him, at first he's like, You're just a boy, but okay. And so he takes his armor. And he puts it on David. He gives him his weapons that he would use. And David starts to try these things out, walk around. It's totally oversized for him. He can't really go around. He's not used to these things. He's like, you know what? I can't go in these. I'm not used to it. He takes off that armory. He puts on his shepherd's clothes. He goes to a stream. He takes five smooth stones. He puts them in his pocket and he faces the giant, not as a soldier, not as a warrior, but as a shepherd. And see, I'm here to let you know, you know, David, he has this sling. And don't confuse that sling with, you know, some of those slingshots that are Y shaped that you can find at towards or Us. You know, you just pull it back and go bing. It's not one of those. You see, the shepherd's sling that David used is more like this you've got this, you're twirling it, you're spinning it, there's a rock in the pocket. And then finally, when you release it, it goes, some weaponry experts say it can go as fast as 200 miles or 200 kilometers per hour. 200 kilometers per hour. And if you are accurate with it, oh man, it is deadly accurate. You, you get smashed in the face with a rock flying at you at 200 kilometers an hour. That will break your face. That will knock you out. You can be killed by that. And see, that's how David confronted him. Not as a warrior, but as a shepherd. And see, what's the point there? Is that David came to Goliath not with the weapons of a warrior, but as a shepherd defends his sheep. And see, how many know that when Jesus, the son of God, came into this world and stood in the middle between us and Satan, he didn't come here as a warrior. He took off his God armor, his rights, his privileges, his abilities, as the son of God. And he came humbly, meekly as a shepherd to give his life for us. And that's why John 10, 11 says it this way. It says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. Now get this. After David defeats Goliath, something happens. You know what happens? David enters the service of Saul's army. He then becomes a soldier. He then learns to use these weapons that he had previously rejected, and he would ultimately become the greatest warrior in Israel. In the same way, how many you know that though Jesus first came to us as a gentle shepherd to lay down his life for his sheep, the Bible says that one day Jesus will come again. And when he comes again, guess how he will come? He will not come as some meek shepherd, but he's going to come as a conquering king, a conquering warrior. In fact, when you read the book of Revelation and you see Jesus, he's pictured not as a shepherd, he's pictured as the most an awesome warrior you've ever seen in your life, who's got a sword for a mouth to vanquish his enemies, because just as David was a shepherd and then a warrior, Jesus is a shepherd and then a warrior, amen, amen. fifth parallel, fifth parallel, see David used his enemy's own weapon against him, Jesus uses his enemy's own weapon against him, See, David, what does he do? He takes his sling. He releases that rock. That rock hits Goliath at 200 kilometers per hour squarely in the forehead. It sinks into his forehead, it crushes this giant's skull. And the image of David crushing Goliath's skull actually recalls a verse from almost the beginning of the Bible, Genesis 3:15, which says, "I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers; he will crush Your head and you will strike his heel. In other words, what does that mean? Is that in the first book of the Bible, God is already predicting that one day an offspring of Adam and Eve, a child of Adam and Eve, is going to rise up to crush Satan's head. And like a stone flying in the face of Goliath and crushing Goliath's head, Jesus is the living stone, Jesus is the rock, and he would fly in the face of Satan to crush his head. And so David crushing the head of Goliath is a picture pointing us forward to the day when Jesus would crush Satan's head under his feet. And see, not, you can give God some praise for that. Come on. That's okay. But you see, David does one more thing after he crushes his head with that stone. As a final statement to show ultimate victory over the enemy, David takes Goliath's sword. He raises it and he cuts Goliath's head. And see, what did David do? He takes the very weapon that Goliath was going to use to kill David, and he uses that same weapon to cut off Goliath's head. And why do I mention that? It's because just as David used Goliath's own weapon against him, Jesus took the cross, the weapon, the tool that Satan wanted to use to kill Jesus, and Jesus used it against Satan. How? Through his resurrection. You see, Satan wanted to kill Jesus, and the cross was his way of doing so. And so when Jesus dies on the cross to pay for sins, it is finished. He breathes his last, gives up his spirit. Satan things. I won. I won. But like a fourth quarter comeback in football with two minutes left, he, what happens? Jesus comes back. Jesus comes back to life and he shows that death has no hold over him because he's not just an ordinary man. He is who he claimed to be. He is the almighty son of God and the cross, which was supposed to kill Jesus, the cross that was supposed to eliminate him for good. The cross now becomes the very means by which Jesus shows his greatness over his enemy. And see, Jesus took a tool that was meant for his own execution and he turned it into a weapon that he was going to use to fight and defeat our greatest enemy. That's why Colossians 2.15 says it this way. It says, And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. You know, later on, David, it says, would take Goliath's weapons, his sword, his other weapons. He'd bring them to the tent where David stays and he would put them in the tent. And now, whenever people would go to the house of David, they would see the, the weapons of Goliath. And no longer do they think, oh yeah, that was supposed to kill David. Now he thinks, that is a reminder of David's victory. You know, in the same way, whenever you go to the house of God, what is the symbol that you find and hear about in pretty much every church building? And here at service, you hear about it every, every week from the stage. You hear about the cross. And it's the very thing that was supposed to kill Jesus and symbolize Jesus' end. And yet now the cross is the greatest symbol for eternal life. The cross is now the greatest symbol of Jesus' victory over death. You know, speaking of the cross, what is a cross? You know, a cross is basically two wooden bars. It's two sticks, if you will. And I find it interesting that when when David meets Goliath for the first time, Goliath sees him and says, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? I found that really interesting. It makes me think that when Goliath saw David, maybe with his staff in hand, he thinks, I've already won. But see, likewise, I could imagine that when Satan saw Jesus carrying the sticks of the cross to the place they call Golgotha or Calvary, that Satan thought, I've already won. Yet it was through his death on the cross and his resurrection from the grave that Jesus would defeat sin and defeat death and defeat Satan. Because Jesus took the very thing that was supposed to kill him and he used it to defeat his enemy. That's why Hebrews 2, 14, 15 says this it says, Since the children have flesh and blood, he, that's Jesus, too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. See, just as David took Goliath's weapons and used them against him to defeat him. Jesus took Satan's weapon and he used it to defeat him. That's parallel number five. Parallel number six, just as David won riches, a bride and freedom for his family. When he defeated Goliath, Jesus won the same when he defeated Satan. You know, first Samuel 17 says it this way in verse 25. It says, can you read it with me A loud voice? It says, now the Israelites had been saying, do you see how this man keeps coming out? He comes out to defy Israel. The king will give great wealth to the man who kills him. He will also give him his royal daughter in marriage and will exempt his father's family from taxes in Israel. In other words, there was a prize that King Saul was offering to anyone who would kill Goliath. It's a threefold prize. First off, Saul promised that he would give that person great Riches. When David defeated Goliath, he became a very rich man. And how many of you know this is that when Jesus defeated Satan, he also got great riches. What kind of riches? They're not monetary riches, but let me explain the riches that Jesus received. So once Jesus he told a story. He said, The kingdom of God is like a merchant, a businessman looking for pearls. And one day he finds this pearl that is so valuable to him that he leaves everything else, sells everything he has just to have, just to buy that pearl and have it for himself. And see one layer of meaning to that parable that Jesus shared is that Jesus is the merchant. You are the pearl. Is that you mean so much to Jesus that Jesus would leave everything else and give up everything else just to have you. You are the riches that Jesus died to win. And if you ever question your worth, just remember this, you are the prize in Jesus's eyes. You are the prize that Jesus gave his life for. You are the treasure that God values. Oh, if you believe that, give God some praise in this place together right now. You are that pearl. Turn to me and say, I'm looking at a pearl. I'm looking at a pearl. And you know what? I I gotta tell you this, is that Jesus, just for the chance to be with you, just for the chance to say that you belong to me, He gave everything. And I don't know about you, I, I love pearl milk tea. I don't drink it that often, but when I drink a pearl, the pearl has no choice but to go into my mouth. But see, you're a pearl, you have a choice. You have a choice to say, will I let myself belong to Jesus? Or I just kind of stay in my little sunken mud right here. You have a choice, but you are a pearl of great price in Jesus' eyes. That's the first prize that we get or that Jesus got when he conquered Satan. Another one is this. Saul promised to give to the person who defeats Goliath a bride. In fact, he says, you can marry my royal daughter, a princess. Likewise, you know that when Satan was defeated by Jesus at the cross, Jesus won for himself a bride. It's every person who would ever believe in Jesus. It's the church. It's you and me. That's why the church is described in the New Testament as the bride of Christ. Third, Saul promised to give the person who defeats Goliath freedom for their family. And he's referring to exemption from taxes. You know, other translations of verse 25 say, I will make his father's house free. Would you love to be free from taxes? Oh, no more having to talk to CRA. No more having to give anything to CRA. Oh man, that would be amazing. But let me tell you this. When Jesus defeated Satan at the cross, Jesus made freedom possible for his family, his children. It's you and me. You still have to pay your taxes for now to CRA, but because of Jesus, sin and death don't need to tax you anymore. Amen. Amen. That's the sixth parallel. Finally, seventh parallel. David's victory encouraged his people to be courageous. David's Jesus' victory encourages his people to be courageous. See what happened when David's people saw the victory that David had won for them? Look at first Samuel seventeen fifty-two. It says, Then the men of Israel and Judah surged forward with a shout and pursued the Philistines to the entrance of Gath and to the gates of Ekron. Everyone say the gates. See, David, he he single-handedly does all the work to beat Goliath and wins this amazing victory for the people. And after seeing David win that way, his people, the Israelites now have the courage to fight themselves with a shout. They start pursuing all the other Philistines. And the words of Romans 8 is as if they became more than conquerors through him who loved them and won the victory for them. And see, in the same way, Jesus did all the work single-handedly to defeat Satan for us. And we are saved all and only because of him. And when his his disciples saw the resurrection of Jesus and Jesus' victory over death. What happened to them? It caused them to become courageous to preach the gospel too. And just as David's victory caused his people to advance even up to the gates of their enemies' camp, guess what? All of a sudden, Jesus' victory gives us courage to keep proclaiming Jesus everywhere we go until the gates of hell cannot prevail. Oh, come on. Would you give God your praise in this place together right now? Acts 4.13 says it this way. It says, when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. You know, there's something about being with Jesus that makes us courageous. And see, likewise, when we see the victory that Jesus won for us at the cross and as his resurrection, his victory over sin and death, it gives us courage. To move forward as well. It gives us courage to be courageous to ourselves. Maybe you're facing a really difficult challenge right now. Maybe in your work, maybe in your family, maybe in your marriage, maybe in your finances, maybe when it comes to your future, your health, health of someone you love. Can I tell you this? It's time to look to Jesus because when you look to Jesus, you find the courage that you need. When you look to Jesus, you find the type of courage that you need to face whatever it is you're facing. Are you facing a giant of a problem right now? You know, one of the big benefits I find of having Jesus in my life is that when I have nothing left to give, when I'm scared, when I'm freaked out, when I'm stressed, when I'm anxious, when I'm frustrated, when I'm empty, when I go to Jesus, I find a strength that I didn't have before. I find a hope I didn't have before. I didn't have a I have a peace that I didn't have before. And I don't think it's just me playing mind games with myself and you know playing tricks on myself. I believe that what the Bible says is true. Is that when you come to God honestly with an open heart and you give God the room to work, he works in your life and he produces in you faith, courage, joy, peace, wisdom that you couldn't manufacture yourself. If you believe that say amen. And so, if you're going through a giant of a challenge right now, it's time to look to Jesus. Turn your. It's time to look to Jesus. You know, these. Speaking of looking to Jesus, these are seven ways that the story of David and Goliath points us to Jesus, to the person and work of Jesus Christ. Because David is a type of Christ. But see, the story of David and Goliath also contains some very practical lessons for us today. And I want to end with that today. See, how do you live in light of the story of David and Goliath? Let me give you three things we can do. Number one, you can write this down. Be faithful in the little things, and one day God will entrust you with the greater things. You see, while David was faithfully carrying out his duties, that's when the giant opportunity came. It's when he was acting as a shepherd serving his father, being an Uber Eats delivery boy, and just doing as best, as good of a job as he possibly can. That's when the giant opportunity came. And I'm here to tell you this. Maybe you're here and you're looking for your big break. You're looking for that big break when it comes to your career or your business or when it comes to relationships. You're like, when will it be my time? Let me tell you this. Be faithful with the little things because God watches to see who will be faithful with the little things when he decides, I'm going to entrust this to this person. See, Jesus says, whoever can be trusted with a little can also be trusted with much. And whoever's dishonest with little will also be dishonest with much. So be faithful in the little things. Let me put it this way. The key to your success tomorrow is your faithfulness today. That's the first thing. Be faithful in little things because God's going to trust you with more later. Number two, be wise and self-controlled when you're in a conflict with family. You remember David and his brother Eliab at the battlefield? When Eliab sees David coming, he's like, who do you think you are, you wicked, conceited boy? Who do you think you are? And see, David, one of the things I I appreciate about him is he doesn't pick a fight with his brother right there and then. Instead, he just turns away. He focuses on other things. See, in any family, conflict is inevitable. You're going to have conflict no matter what. And in a church family, conflict is also novel. Because as much as we want to be more like Jesus, we're all human. We will never be perfect until the day we see Jesus face to face. And so you've got broken people dealing with broken people. And so conflict will, from, from time to time, happen. It's just bound to happen. But here's the thing, is that if you want the conflicts in your life to be as minimal as possible, and if you want to resolve those conflicts as quickly and peacefully as possible, let me tell you, so much depends on how you communicate. See, Pastor Shar and I, we've been married for 19 years. And it's just amazing how so many conflicts are the result of not what we said, but how we said it. And we realize, man, it's about how we communicate. Now, you know, it's really difficult to give blanket answers because conflicts are often very highly contextualized, very specific. And so here, nonetheless, are some general principles that we learn from the Bible on how to resolve conflict. And my prayer is that God would give you wisdom to remember these principles and learn how to apply them when the time is right. So first one is this. If somebody attacks you verbally and unfairly, instead of fighting fire with fire, one of the best things that you can do is maintain your integrity, don't play their game, and just keep shining your light is that instead of slinging mud because they slung mud at you, getting your hands dirty, you just keep doing the right thing and trust God will be your defender and he's going to make all things good in his time. You just keep on shining your light. You don't kind of get down to their level. You just keep on going, keep shining your light. Turn your keep shining your light. Number two, say someone comes up to you and starts talking badly to you about someone else. And they're not looking to you for some advice on how to deal with anything. They're just kind of gossiping. Oh, did you hear about this guy? You know? and, oh, and they're just kind of talking for the sake of talking. If that happens to you, there's three things that you can consider doing. Number one, change the topic. Just change the topic. Oh, you know what? I really hope it doesn't rain for, 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 for trunk chunk or treat later, later on this afternoon. You, you change the topic. Another one is you walk away. Maybe it just keeps on. You know, you're like, okay, you know what? Hey, it's really good to see you, man. I'll t- you don't have to make a big deal of it, but yeah, you know, hey, really good to see you. I'll see you soon. I'll take care. Yeah, take care. All right. That's another one. Another one is if you find that this person just keeps talking to you about this, you can say, you know what? Hey, if you've got such an issue with this person, can I encourage you to talk to that person directly? Don't involve me. Just go and talk to that person directly. These are, I believe, wise ways to deal with a situation. like that. Here's another one. If someone confides in you that they have a problem with another person. There's you gotta really question, is there really a need for me to go to that other person and go, oh you know what so-and-so said this about you? Or oh you know some people are saying this, you know, you know, some people are really kind of not happy with you and this one, and, and you want, know please don't do that. Because if you are not careful, you're actually going to make the situation far worse and far more complicated than it needs to be. The one possible exception I can think of right now where maybe you want to talk to that person is if you are that person's leader, that person's parent, that person's guardian, you're somehow responsible for that person. And even if that's you, even if that's your role, that's your position, you also still want to be careful and wise about how you approach it is that maybe instead of coming at them with all these judgments and conclusions, you ask questions first. You say, "Can, can you help me? Understand what happened a little bit more, and you find out more about what happened before you say anything else because that's being wise in dealing with the situation. If you let's say amen. amen, here's another one if you yourself have an issue with somebody, rather than telling everyone else about your issue and trying to start a quiet campaign against that person, how about this talk to that person directly. And say, if it's something where you really can't let it go, and it's not something where you're a stranger, you don't know that person, that person doesn't know you, but you actually have a relationship. There's actually some trust there, and you actually have a relationship with one another. Then maybe, just maybe, you need to go to that person and say, hey, can we have a talk? Can we sit down and just have a conversation? And can I tell you this? When you have that conversation, don't do it in writing. Don't do it in writing. You know, coming from a legal background, I can tell you, it always sounds worse in writing. It does. You know, it's one of those where our brain, our amygdala in our brain, our fight or fight response will always interpret what we hear in writing in a negative way. We're like, oh, the world is falling apart. And so you got to make sure that when you want to talk to someone about a serious issue, that you meet up with them, have a face-to-face conversation, or at least talk about it on the phone so you can hear the person's tone of voice. Ideally, you want to see the person's facial expressions, their body language. They can see yours so that that way you can really come to a place of mutual understanding together. If you believe that, say amen. amen. And see, when talking with someone in a conflict, you want to do this. You want to be a great listener. Be a great listener. Don't just listen to respond. Like, okay, I'm listening. Yeah, okay. Yeah, point number 1 you're wrong. Yeah, point number 2 you're so wrong. Point number 3 you are so 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 wrong. Right? Don't do, you're just listening to respond. No, no, no. Instead, when you listen, you listen to really understand where that person is coming from. You try to put yourself in that person's shoes and go, "How would I feel if I was in that person's shoes?" And see, when you can start to feel that, you can start to acknowledge how that person feels. By acknowledging what that person's feeling doesn't mean you agree with them. It doesn't mean, oh yeah, you're totally right. You, I, I, I'm totally wrong. You're totally right. No, you're simply acknowledging their feeling. And by acknowledging their feeling, you are respecting their value. And it's kind of like saying, you know what? I'm so sorry you felt taken for granted. That was never my intention. I'm so sorry you felt left out. That was never what I wanted to do. I'm so sorry you felt excluded. I'm, you know, I, I never wanted that to ever happen. And if there is something where you realize you want, yeah, actually I have a part to play is I did something wrong. Even if it's not totally your fault, own up to what you did and say, you know, I'm really sorry. I apologize for that part. Would you please forgive me? See, what is that? That is healthy communication. And see, no matter how much you care What is so absolutely crucial if you want to minimize conflict in your relationships and resolve conflicts when they will inevitably come is how you communicate. Because if you're not wise in how you communicate, guess what's going to happen? You're going to have more conflicts and very bad conflicts and they're going to get worse and worse. And so Thrive Church, may God give you wisdom to resolve conflicts quickly And wisely, so as not to let them fester. Because in the family of God, conflicts will happen. But it's about learning to love. It's learning to be mature. It's learning to communicate in healthy ways. If you believe that, say amen. Amen. One final thought, and we're going to close. What's one more way we can live in light of the story of David and Goliath? You can write this one down. Choose to be courageous, trusting in God's power. Choose to be courageous, trusting in God's power. How many know that courage is not just a feeling? Courage is a choice. Courage is not the absence of fear. Courage is you moving forward even when you are afraid. And see, what gave David the courage to face a giant when everyone else was shrinking in fear? Let's take a look at 1 Samuel chapter 17, 34. It's one of our last passages for today. Would you read this in a big, loud voice, the loudest voice you've used with me today? One, two, three, it says, but David said to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. Saul said to David, go, and the Lord be with you. See what's going on here? When David was facing a giant of a problem, he looked to God and remembered all the ways that God had helped him in the past. It's almost he closed his eyes and he could have this, this running movie in his mind of all those times in the past when God was there, when he was in need. And it helps him to have courage to face what he's facing. You know, let me put it another way. When you're facing uncertainty today, look to God's faithfulness yesterday to give you hope tomorrow. See, one of the most helpful things that you can do when you're facing a gigantic problem is to think back to the ways that God has helped you. The same God who delivered you yesterday is with you today and will help you overcome what you're facing tomorrow. Question for you today, what is one way that God has helped you in the past that God is saying, remember that? Remember that? I'm the same God. I'm the same God who's here. It may feel like a different season, but it's the same God who's with you today. And the same God is going to pull you through. The same God will never leave or forsake you. The same God is still in control. The same God is writing greater story. The same God is going to see you through this. And if you can't think of anything at all that God has helped you with in the past, let me remind you, if Jesus Christ conquered your two biggest problems in life, if he conquered your sin at the cross where he died, if he conquered death when he rose again from the grave? How will he not help you with any smaller problem that you go through today? He's the same God. Oh, come on. Would you give God your praise in this place together right now? I think there's more in there. Come on, give God all of your praise. Come on. Today's message is called The Type of Courage You Need. What is the type of of courage you need today tomorrow let me tell you the type of courage you need is not the kind of courage that comes from I'm just going to believe in myself I'm just going to believe in you know how good I am I'm going to believe in my power to do things myself no the courage that you need the type of courage you need is the courage that comes when you recognize who God is It's the courage that comes when you root yourself, not in your own power, but in God's power for your life. First Samuel 17, 45 says it this way. It says, David said to the Philistine, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty. Remember this, God's name equals God's power. God's name is God's power and when you do anything in the name of the Lord God Almighty, what you're doing is saying I'm not just going to trust in my own strength or my own way or my own experience or my own power, but I'm going to trust in the one who is with me Jesus Christ, the Lord He is with me and because He's with me, who can be against me? Because He's with me I can walk through the valley of the shadow of death and fear no more evil. It's because it's not a courage that's about me it's a courage that comes when I see who Jesus is and he is my courage oh come on will you give God your praise David trusted in God's power not his own power to save him likewise there's only so much we can do in our own power but when you trust in the name of God the power of God. You give God room to do what only he can do. And so it's with that in mind, I want everyone to stand here in this place today. I want to give you an opportunity to respond to God right now because he's here. He loves you. So with every head bowed and every eye closed, if you're here today and you realize just like the song says that you need God in your life, that you need a savior to save you from your sins, you realize today that God loves you, but that no matter how hard you try, you can never get to God on your own. If you're here and you've never asked Jesus for his forgiveness, and you want to ask him for his forgiveness, you want to be cleansed of your sin, you want to be made new in the eyes of God, you want to not be under the condemnation of accuser anymore, but you want to live free and alive and secure in forgiveness that Jesus won for you on the cross. In the peace that comes with having a relationship with God. Now, I encourage you to respond to God right here, right now. And this is the most courageous step that you will ever have to take. It's when you ask Jesus Christ to ask Him for His forgiveness. When you open up your heart to Him, it's a simple step. It takes just a little bit of courage, but I want to encourage you to do that because it's the most important decision you could ever make. If you realize you need Jesus for forgiveness for sin today, I would encourage you to lift your hand to God right now. If you want to ask Jesus for his forgiveness? You want to ask Jesus for his peace that what he can do that you can't do on your own? Why don't you lift your hand to God right now? Don't worry about your neighbor doesn't concern them. One of our team may come to you with a little card with a prayer on it. If you're here on site, if you're online, go and click the link that's in your chat room. It'll take you to the same prayer that we're going to pray in just a second. Don't be afraid. Just lift up courageously your hand today to demonstrate you need Jesus today. This between you and God. And we're going to pray this prayer today together as a way to simply say, Jesus, I need you. And I encourage you to pray with those who are praying for the first time together right now. Let's pray this together. We're going to say, dear Jesus, thank you that because you love me, you died on the cross to pay for my sins. You rose again to give me life. Today, I open up my heart and I ask you, please forgive me of all my sins and please fill me. with your Holy Spirit. Spirit. I place my trust, trust, not in what I do, do. but in what you've done for me. In In Jesus' name I pray, amen, amen. 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 Praise God. Hey, if you prayed that prayer just now, then I'm here to tell you, according to the Bible, you are forgiven of your sins. It's not because I say so, it's because God's word says so. It's because you, through the blood of Jesus, have been cleansed of your sins. You've been brought back in relationship with God through the cross, through what Jesus Christ has done. And not only that, you are a citizen of heaven. And because of that, you got a relationship with God. And so through all these things, I want to encourage you to do this. Today, the Bible says, believe and be baptized. We encourage you, You did since you took the first step of believing, we encourage you to take the second step of getting baptized. Baptism is not a graduation. It's not saying, look how good I am, look how perfect I am. Look, have no more questions. No, none of that at all. It's a beginning. It's you simply saying, "I prayed a prayer to receive Jesus Christ into my life, and I want to just acknowledge that, and I just want to celebrate that." And if that's you, that's your next step. You can go to mythrive.info, press the baptism button. We'd love to help you with that here today. Can we give all of our friends who prayed that prayer just now a big hand? Praise God!
1: Hello, everyone. Welcome to Thrive. My name is Marizal, and please let me spend a few minutes to go through some announcements with you and what's coming up here at Thrive. If this is your first time here, we would love to connect with you. We want to give you a Thrive stainless steel water bottle to thank you for spending your time with us. Simply visit mythrive.info and click new to Thrive or text new to 604-285-570. We will mail the water bottle straight to your mailing address. If you're on site with us at La Pont Place, we so honoured you here. You can pick up your gifts at the Welcome Centre by the door of the Service. Here at Thrive, we love praying together and we believe in the power of prayer. In fact, we often say much prayer, much power, little prayer, little power, no prayer, no power. If you want to encounter Holy Spirit in a personal way and to experience the power of prayer, we want to invite you to join us next Sunday, November 6th, for the Holy Spirit Prayer Meeting, happening from 1.15pm to 2.15pm. We can't wait to pray and worship with you. Last but not least, if you want to get more connected with Thrive Community, we want to invite you to get plugged in at Thrive by joining a small group or by being part of a serving team. This is the best way to meet new friends and to develop meaningful relationships with other Thrivers. To sign up, visit mythrive.info. That is all for the announcements today. Don't forget to give your and offerings online at mythrive.info. We look forward to seeing you again next Sunday. Stay blessed.